Well, what we're going to be talking about this morning is, is a set of truths that have just become enormously precious to me. Uh, it's a way of thinking about Jesus that I didn't grow up with. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, for, and my parents were wonderful Christian people, just really committed to the Lord and, and uh, charter members of our local church that I grew up in and all the rest. But this was just a way of thinking about Jesus I didn't, uh, I, I didn't see, I didn't get growing up. And I'll tell you what happened in terms of the, the beginning of the process to change my, my thinking on this were questions that were just perplexing me. And uh, two of them are on your handout to begin with. Uh, two questions. The first one, I can remember... Um, no, I'm sorry, it was the second one, the second question I can remember asking when I was a kid at about 12 years old. This is when, when this question first came to my mind. So anyway, these are two questions that uh, I, I mulled over for the longest time until finally, reading through the scriptures, I, I began to get clarity on what the answers to these were. And it is phenomenal. I don't know if you've learned, by the way, in your own lives as a think, thinking Christian, <coughs> excuse me, that, that questions are your friends, not your enemies. That oftentimes questions provide what amounts to a tiny little, like it were, as, as it were, a crack in the wall. You couldn't see beyond that wall before, but now you realize there's something there that you haven't seen yet, and that question is kind of what begins to open it up for you. So here are two questions that uh, really led me to, to where I have uh, landed these days that I'm presenting to you this morning. First one is this. Why would Jesus who is the God-man. He is fully God, right, as well as fully man. Why would Jesus, who is the God-man, need to have the Spirit of God upon him? Why, what, what can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? And, you know, there is an answer to that question. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? The answer is nothing, absolutely nothing. The deity of Christ is infinitely full, Nothing could be added to the deity of Christ. Well, so since he's already fully God, what's the point of Jesus having the Spirit upon him? But, of course, it's a big point. The Old Testament, we'll, we'll start there in just a moment. The Old Testament uh, prophesies the day when the Messiah will come who has the Spirit upon him. The very first thing that Jesus announces in his public ministry is he reads from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I mean, it's a big deal. But the question is, Why? What's the point? It looks totally superfluous, just unnecessary that he would have the Spirit. Here's the second question. How can Jesus, in his sinless obedience and sacrificial service, rightly be upheld as a model for how we should live since he was the God-man and we are not? Now, that's the question I had when I was 12 years old. <clears throat> I can still remember as vividly as if it were yesterday. I was sitting on my bed in my basement room uh, as a 12-year-old boy, and I was reading my Bible because our pastor had encouraged us to, to read our Bibles more. Thanks, honey. This is my wife, Jody, by the way, and uh, she, many of the women here have met her already. So, And uh, I, I was reading my Bible and was reading in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 came to the statement in verse 21, a very famous statement, that we are to follow in his steps... You know what the next phrase is that in the next verse? Follow in Jesus' steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And I dropped my Bible on my lap. I looked up as if to looking up to God, and I said, that's not fair. How can I be called 
to, to follow in the steps of Jesus since he was God and I'm not. Now, amazingly, both of these questions are answered if you understand that though he was fully God, and that's very important to affirm for, for the atonement to take place, he has to be both fully God and fully man. But if you understand that though he was fully God, he actually lived his day-to-day life as it were out of his humanity, as one of us, as the second Adam. You know, the second Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. As the son of David, as the seed of Abraham, he comes as a man. So now you ask the question, go back to the first question. Now ask this question. What can the Spirit of God add to the humanity of Christ? Ah, everything supernatural that is needed for him to fulfill the mission the Father sent him to do, to, 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 to obey fully, to, you know, as Philippians 2 says, to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and, and to resist temptation and to, to live the life of flawless obedience, of, of joyous faithfulness before the Father in the power of the Spirit. Now, the second question, how, how, how can it be right for the Scriptures to to commend to us that we are to follow in Jesus' steps, to live like Jesus lived, since he was the God-man and we are not. Well, here's the answer. That the very power by which Jesus lived his life, the power of the Spirit, that power then, that Spirit, is then given to us when Jesus goes back to be with the Father. So we are granted the same resources Jesus had in his earthly ministry. Now, now, of course, the, the Word of God... Uh, prayer uh, and and uh, uh, and the community of faith uh, to 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 be encouraged by by one another, but principally the Spirit Himself is given to us when He ascends. So that's really what we're looking at this morning: is this beautiful picture of Jesus living His life as a man in the power of the Spirit, and that then is sort of where the rubber meets the road for us is not only in marveling at Jesus. We'll see more of this in a minute here but also recognizing that the way Jesus lived his life then is indeed a model for how we are called to live as Christian people, empowered by the same Spirit who empowered Jesus. Okay, are you ready for a a bit of a tour through some of the passages in Scripture that help us see this? Uh, Roman numeral 2, Jesus' life of submission and obedience in the power of the Spirit. And I begin with just one Old Testament passage. We could have a number here, but I I picked this one because I think it's so interesting and so telling. In Isaiah 11, we read this. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse, by the way? Jesse is David's father, right? So what is in the background of this passage, as well as many, many passages that refer to the coming of the Messiah, is the, the promise given to David... Do you know where that is in the Bible? 2 Samuel 7. Do you know those S's? You'll remember it now, right? 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that he would have a son who would reign upon his throne forever. So that Davidic covenant, that promise to David, <coughs> is in the background of this, of this very text. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now look at this. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Let me ask you two questions. 
As you think of the life and ministry of Jesus, his teaching, his interaction with people, would you say that Jesus exhibited wisdom in the way that he lived his life, in the, in the ways in which he interacted with others? Did he exhibit wisdom? Oh, my, yes. I mean, you th- think of, for example, Jesus with Nicodemus. I mean, what wisdom there was in how he dealt with that, that uh, very, very eager, searching Pharisee. Th- think of Jesus and the woman at the well. What wisdom he exhibited, right? Okay, second question. According to Isaiah 11, verse 2, how did Jesus have such wisdom? It's a shocker, isn't it? By the Spirit who worked within him. This is how Jesus was able to know the things that he knew, to to have the insight that he had. But the Spirit was ministering to him so he would know by the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord meaning, in the Old Testament, meaning uh, a, a earnest longing to walk in the ways of God, fi- finding my greatest joy and delight and happiness in following in the ways of God, knowing that to stray from God's ways will bring only destruction. That's what fear of the Lord is. And he he was filled with the fear of the Lord because he was filled with the Spirit who put upon his heart this longing to walk in faithfulness with his God. Okay, well, just one Old Testament text, but we realize the significance then of the Old Testament pointing forward to a day when the Spirit-anointed Messiah would come and live in the power of the Spirit. Now, it's fulfilled, of course, with Jesus himself. So we read in Luke 1, 32 to 35... Notice the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is the angel Gabriel who says to Mary, he, referring to the one that will be born of her, of course, and that's Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So there's no question that this is the fulfillment then of that Davidic promise. Do you remember what passage it was in the Old Testament? 2 Samuel 7, all right? So that passage is now fulfilled, according to Gabriel, in in, uh, Luke 1, as Jesus is born of Mary. And then Mary goes on. Mary says to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So here is this miracle of the virgin conception of Christ. You know, sometimes we talk about the miracle of the virgin birth. And of course, it's not that that's wrong per se, but actually the birth of Christ was a normal childbirth. Now, extraordinary circumstances, no doubt, but the, the, really the miracle was nine months earlier, right? The conception that took place in Mary, apart from a human father, as the Holy Spirit worked then to bring about miraculously in her the conception of one who would be born as, the God, as fully God and fully man. So, so the, the, the virgin conception that is the basis for our understanding how the incarnation took place, this one who would be both fully God and fully man. Now, I think, though, that Luke hints here that it's more than just the, the, uh, the, uh, the joining together of a human nature with a divine nature. I think he hints also that at his very conception, he has the Spirit upon him. 
from that point forward. In other words, he doesn't receive the Spirit at his baptism. We'll talk about that in a minute. But rather, he has the Spirit upon him from the get-go, from his very conception. The hint that I see in this is where, in verse 35, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So the repetition of holy, I think, is an indication that he's holy because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will be upon him. And, And so he has the Spirit from the very beginning. Now, honestly, here's the alternative. If he doesn't have the Spirit until his baptism, how how old is he at his baptism? 30 years old. So how do you get from 0 to 30 sinless? Here's the other option is to kind of go the default evangelical route. That that is the the position that most of us have by by default as, as Christian people. That is, he lived his life out of his deity, which means then his obedience was automatic. His resisting of temptation, easy. I mean, God cannot be tempted, we're told, in, uh, in James chapter 1. So, so you realize, boy, if he, if he doesn't have the Spirit, and then, then here's the other question. What's the point of the Spirit at age 30? Well, again, what can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? If he's done just fine, thank you, without the Spirit, you know, until 30 years old, living a sinless life, what's the point of receiving the Spirit now? <clears throat> so I, I think that we, we are rather to understand that from the very beginning and through the whole of his life, including those early years of his growth and development, he has the Spirit upon him. Here's one argument for that. Remember John the Baptist, just earlier in Luke chapter 1, this is in verse 15 if you want to look at it later. <coughs> in Luke 1.15, we're told that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit when? While in his mother's womb, Right? So before he was born, the forerunner of the Messiah has the Spirit upon him at, at his birth, before his birth. Well, how much more the Messiah, it seems to me, the argument would be kind of a light, heavy sort of argument that uh, is often used by Jesus. You know, If you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give good to those who ask of him? So this light, heavy, if, if, the, if the mere forerunner of Messiah had the Spirit, how much more the Messiah it would seem. Here's another reason for thinking so. The next passage on your handout. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52. Now these two verses, let me, before I read them to you, are bookends, they, they bracket the only account we have in the Gospels of Jesus in his early life. Jesus is a 12-year-old boy who is taken down to Jerusalem to be dedicated at the temple. His folks head back home and they realize, oh shucks, where's Jesus, you know? <laughs> You've never done that, have you? You know, back back at exit 33 where you stop for gas, is Johnny back there? So anyway, they're heading home and uh, Jesus is not there. They go back, find him in the temple of all things, conversing with the teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem. These are the PhDs of the PhDs of the day. I mean, you don't get more brilliant, more learned Jewish men than, than the teachers of the law in Jerusalem would have been. And, and what, what, what do we read in that account in Luke 1, in Luke chapter 2? That what, what was coming out of his mouth 
astonished those teachers of the law. Most of us, when we read that, how do we account for it? How could Jesus, a 12-year-old boy, hold his own with the teachers of the law in Jerusalem? And we, we normally would say, well, he was God. Ah, Luke, Luke wants us to think differently. Not that he wasn't God, indeed he was, but look at verses 40 and 52. Here we read, again, these, these two verses bracket that one account. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong. So physical growth, of course, that's what we would expect of this little infant who grows to be a man. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. Let me ask you something. Is that a phrase appropriate to God? Does God grow in wisdom day by day? Boy, he gets smarter every day. No, he has infinite wisdom. God cannot learn anything. You remember Isaiah 40? We'll talk about it in the sermon this morning. No one can instruct God because he knows everything. So to increase in wisdom would be then a reference to Jesus' humanity, right? He grows in wisdom. Look at the next phrase. And the grace of God was upon him. I think that's another way of referring to the spirit who is at work in him. The grace of God was upon him, enabling him to grow in wisdom. Then, verse 52, likewise, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. So, in other words, he grew holistically as a boy. The whole of him grew, as it were, but both, both in his own life, uh, as his body as it grew and developed, but his own inner life as well grew as he, as, as he was instructed by the Spirit and, and came to understand truth as the Spirit helped him see the Word of God as he would read it. You know, I, I think of Psalm 1. The Psalter, the, 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 book, the book of the Psalms, is largely Christological. Now, not, not completely. You don't want to read Christ into everything that is there. But nonetheless, there's an overarching major theme of Christ in the Psalms. And notice Psalm 1. Have you ever wondered why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1? Because it describes, of course, the, the, the righteous man and the wicked man, the, these two, the contrast between the two. And it's commending to us, of course, living as the righteous man, not as the wicked. But, uh, but here, I think, is the point of Psalm 1. It's not just... Us who can live as righteous men and others who live as wicked men, but rather it is the righteous man. It's describing the epitome of the righteous man who loves the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. And so he is like a tree planted by rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. That's Jesus. You see it? So as a boy growing... He meditated upon scripture. He read the word that he loved and the spirit illumined his mind to understand. He grew in wisdom. I think there must have been a day, probably in the early life of Jesus, in his early childhood, when he was meditating through the Psalms and came to Psalm 22. And the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see that Psalm is about me. This one who is forsaken of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the way Psalm 22 begins. The suffering that he would endure. Isaiah 53, reading through that, the spirit opens his mind to understand this is about me. The suffering servant who will give his life a ransom for many. And of course, Jesus knew that was his purpose, didn't he? The son of man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So he grew in wisdom through that. Now, Luke 3 is where the baptism takes place. When all the people were baptized, this is now Jesus at 30 years old. Jesus was baptized, and while praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, I think part of the reason for the baptism of Christ was that it indicated to those who were present there at the baptism, John in particular. In John 1, we're told that the Father says to John, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend in the form of a dove, that's my son. So part of the reason for the baptism was the, the, the very testimony to others of his identity as, the, as the, the Son of God sent as the Messiah into the world. So that's part of it. But I think part of it is also fits into a theme we see in both Testaments. And that is the Spirit comes at particular times to anoint for special mission, like upon a Gideon, <coughs> upon a Moses, you know, and in the New Testament, upon a Peter. This is after Pentecost. But the Spirit comes upon him to enable him to, to then do things that require extraordinary supernatural capability. Well, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The very next thing that happens after the baptism is he's sent into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I mean, the battle is engaged at this point. And so the Spirit empowers him now for what he will take on as he goes public. Moving on, uh, Luke chapter 4, you'll notice three passages here in a row that are from Luke chapter 4 highlighting the role of the Spirit in Jesus. Just notice these with me. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, this is after his baptism, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Even stronger in Mark's account, Mark 1.12 reads, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. It's a stronger verb that indicates the, 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 um, the insistence of the Spirit in, in Jesus doing this. <coughs> but notice, it's the Spirit upon Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit to do that in Luke 4, verse 1. Now, after the temptation took place, of course, he succeeded, didn't he? Look sometime, by the way, it's not part of this here, look sometime at the, at the three temptations of Christ in Luke chapter 4. Compare them to the three descriptions of the tree of the knowledge of good and, good and evil in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verse 6. The tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to, be, to, to make one wise. And you realize that the second Adam succeeded in resisting the same kind of temptations the first Adam failed at. So there is an intended, there's an intended sense in which, in which Luke indicates the second Adam succeeded. The first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. <coughs> so indeed, Jesus was victorious over uh, temptation. And then verse 14 we read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now isn't it interesting that Luke includes that phrase, in the power of the Spirit? Because he could have just said, if his interest was only to give us the itinerary, you know, he was down here and then he went up to Galilee. Okay, fine, and, and, and we would know that. But he isn't interested in just the itinerary. He wants us to know the Spirit is empowering him. And so he includes that phrase. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Then when he comes into Nazareth, his hometown, walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath, they hand him the Isaiah scroll, and he picks this passage to read. Isaiah 61, 
uh, verse 17, he, he took the book of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up, uh, to, let's see, to, to, to uh, I lost my place. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and uh, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them the most astonishing thing you could ever imagine anyone saying. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that amazing? In other words, I who stand before you, who grew up as a boy in your own community, I am the long-awaited Messiah who comes in the power of the Spirit. So indeed, what, what an amazing thing. So isn't it something that Jesus' first public statement of himself relates to himself as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. I mean, that Isaiah scroll that they handed him no doubt included also Isaiah 53. Usually the, the Isaiah scrolls, we know this from, from ones that are still, that have survived over the years, um, include uh, Isaiah 1 to 39 and then 40 to 66. So there are two, 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 two scrolls that contain the whole of the book of Isaiah. And so he would have been given... Uh, in all likelihood, the second scroll of Isaiah from, from uh, chapters 40 to uh, 66, he could have turned to Isaiah 53. But I, I think the reason he turned to Isaiah 61 is this, that until you, before you could understand what the Messiah came to do, that's Isaiah 53, you need to understand who the Messiah is. Identity precedes function, right? Doing is, is an outworking of being. So they need to understand who he is as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. And so he reads from Isaiah 61. Now, move, moving on, a few other passages that help us understand Jesus lived his life in the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12, 28 is a very interesting text. He has just cast out a demon, performed a miracle that the Pharisees cannot deny. You know, they, they don't say he's a charlatan, uh, he's a magician, that, that this wasn't real. They rather say, because they know it was real, this miracle was real, do you remember how they account for the supernatural activity of Christ? He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In other words, yeah, he has supernatural power, but it's from Satan. So Jesus' response in Matthew 12, 28 is this, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice three things real quickly. He does not attribute, first, he does not attribute the power by which he did this to his own intrinsic divine nature. He doesn't say, if I cast out demons by my power as God. Rather, he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, right? So he attributes the power that he is utilizing, as it were, as what he is receiving from the Spirit. Secondly, notice the plural demons, Right? So I take it this is broader than just this one occasion where he cast the demon out of this boy that happened here in Matthew 12, that he's giving a, a broader statement. If I cast out demons, that's how I do it. When I cast out a demon, that's how it happens, by the Spirit of God. And then third, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's the connection there? What's the connection between, if I'm doing this by the Spirit, the kingdom is here? Well, the answer is very simple. What's the identifying marker of the Messiah who will come? 
He will come in the power of the Spirit. <coughs> Do you know that the last king of Israel, of whom the Old Testament states explicitly, had the Spirit upon him? Do you know who that was? Of, the, of all of the lines of the kings of Israel. Of course, none of the kings of the north were, were good kings. Not, not, not all of them did evil inside of the Lord. But, but the southern kingdom, Judah, many of them were good kings. What's the last king of, the, of, of Judah that had the Spirit upon him? David. David. None of the kings after David in the Old Testament does it say the Spirit rested upon them. And so they're looking for the son of David, the greater David, who will come with the Spirit. And when he comes with the Spirit, guess what? The king has come. The king, David, the, the greater David, the promise of 2 Samuel 7 will be fulfilled. And so this is what Jesus says to those Pharisees. Boy, not good news for them who have cited elsewhere, right? But indeed, he is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Okay, moving on. Here's a couple other passages. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus says, men of Israel... I'm sorry, not Jesus. Uh, Peter, this is Peter. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to go too fast here, aren't I? Uh, Peter says... After uh, reciting Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Now look at how he describes Jesus. You've read these words many, many times, but have you noticed? Have you noticed? Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. If you ask Peter the question, how did Jesus do the miracles that he did? His answer is not, he was God. Though Peter knew he was God. Peter worshipped Jesus. Peter was there on the day after the resurrection of Christ when he appeared in the room to Thomas and the others who were there. Thomas, come, touch my hands and my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. Peter was there. He knows that Jesus is God. But if you ask him the question, how does he do his miracles? Answer, God empowers him. More specifically is Acts 10.38. This again is Peter. Now to Cornelius. He gives a one-verse summary of the life and ministry of Jesus. Acts 10, 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Isn't that amazing? No, notice, notice that here, Peter attributes not only the miracles of Christ, the, 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 the uh, casting out of demons to, to the... the to the power of the Spirit upon him, but his doing good, that is, the obedience of Christ, the moral life of Christ, uh, carrying out all that the Father commanded him to do. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit was upon him. And I included also now Acts 1, verses 1 and 2, because I just want you to see something. The Bible indicates that after Jesus' resurrection, he continues to have the Spirit upon him. Now, why would he? After his, after his, the death, his, his death uh, has accomplished everything the Father had, had, had uh, given him to do, and his resurrection vindicates that, why does he have the Spirit upon him afterwards? And the answer is because he is the fulfillment of the promise to David with the son of David who will reign upon the throne of David for how long? 
forever. So he is forever the God-man. He is forever the Messiah who lives his life as a man in the power of the Spirit. So here's a hint of this in Acts 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke, Luke who's writing this, referring to the, the gospel of Luke that he composed earlier. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Do you see it? After he had, by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have to include that phrase. He could have just said, after he had given orders. Right? That would have been clear. We, we wouldn't have puzzled over that at all. But he includes the phrase, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders. What are the orders? This is the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28. This, this is going to all the world to make disciples of the nation. This is the resurrected Christ who gives orders to his apostles. And he does so in the power of the Spirit. So indeed, <coughs> Jesus lived his life in the power of the Spirit. Now, in the last moments that we have, we're going to spend a little time for Q&A as well. But in the last moments, I want to talk with you about the temptations that Christ faced some people have drawn the conclusion that if Christ really was tempted, and of course we believe he was, the scriptures make clear that he really was tempted, in order to account for the fact that Jesus was really tempted, we would have to say then that Jesus could have sinned. This is the way some have gone, because they cannot conceive in their minds how he could have been tempted and yet could not have sinned. Now, I hold the view, though, it's called the doctrine of impeccability. It's a long-standing doctrine in the church. It comes from the Latin term pacara, P-E-C-C-A-R-E, which means to sin. So he's impeccable. That doesn't mean he's tidy. He's neat, right? It's not that kind of impeccable. But he's impeccable, meaning he cannot sin. <clears throat> so not only does this doctrine affirm that he never did sin. Of course, we all affirm that. But it affirms more strongly he could not have sinned. And I think there's good reason to affirm that doctrine. Because it's impossible for me to imagine <clears throat> that if he sinned, it could be something that only affects his human nature, since his divine nature is moral at its core. How could sinning not affect his divine nature, which is impossible, which is intolerable to, to imagine sin entering into the divine nature. So I think it is better to affirm what most in the church have affirmed, and that is that he is impeccable, that he could not sin. So, what, what do we say about that? Let me, let me walk through this with you. First of all, we need to affirm he was sinless. That's clear in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.21, follow in his steps, who committed no sin. And 1 John 3.5, he had no sin. So we, we know these are just a few of the verses that declare that. Furthermore, we know he was tempted. Uh, the temptation in Luke 4, as I commented on earlier, and that very strong statement in Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So we can't undermine or minimize the, the reality and the force of those temptations. More on that in a moment. Number three, I think he was impeccable. Notice he was conceived the holy child born. We talked about that earlier in Luke one thirty-five, And the Bible indicates that he is immutable, that he is unchangeable. Now, obviously, Christ is not unchangeable in his human nature, right? Because it, it, can, uh, 
It can grow and develop in, in all those ways. But his divine nature is unchangeable. It's referring to him who is the eternal God taking on human nature. Well, if that is the case, then there is no way that anything can happen in his life that would jeopardize the immutability of the holy nature of Christ. And so I, I don't think that uh, sin is possible for him to have done. Number four, so how do we explain then the reality of the temptations in light of his impeccability? Well, first of all, we, we want to claim what the scriptures claim, and that was he really was tempted in all things as we are. And I understand that to mean every category of temptation, every way in which we are tempted. Not, not it cannot mean he was tempted with every single temptation every single person is tempted with. That's logically impossible. I mean, we're tempted with technological stuff today that didn't exist even 50 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago. I mean, there, there's no way an alcoholic is tempted in ways that a non-alcoholic is not. I mean, there's no way he could be tempted with every single temptation every single person is tempted with. It's rather categories of temptation. And I think you'll find those in Luke 4 and Genesis 3, 6. More on that another time, but I, I think that's, that's where I would go for that. Ways in which that are common to all of us to be tempted. He was tempted in all those ways as we are. Next point, because he never succumbed to temptation, he experienced the, the full force of that temptation. Now, don't you know that sometimes you give in to temptation because you just don't want to keep fighting? It's hard to keep fighting. It's just easier to give in. Well, realize he never, ever once gave in. So every one of his temptations, he fought all the way to the end through them to be victorious on the other side. Every time. So he experienced the full weight of every single temptation. What an amazing thing. Third point, because so much was at stake, Satan would have tempted and afflicted him with the greatest intensity possible. I mean, what's at stake with you or me, you know, sinning is not nearly what it was with Jesus sinning. Satan knows the answer to this question. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? He knows the answer to that. He just needs to trip him up once, just once, and everything is over. There's no salvation. The whole of the mission that the Father has sent him to accomplish is dependent upon him going to the cross blameless so he can bear our blame as a substitute. He never, ever once sinned. Now, how did he accomplish that? I think it's important to distinguish between why it is Christ could not sin and why it is he did not sin. Those are two very different things. Let me explain this to you. Why, why he could not sin, you probably know from what I've already said, he's God. He's the God-man, and because of that, he could not sin. But why is it he did not sin? Here's where I think we get tripped up. We think that's the same answer. He did not sin because he's God, so he resisted everything out of his deity. I don't think so. I think the answer to why it is he did not sin is that as a man, he utilized resources given to him in his humanity and thereby never sinned as he fought with those resources, the Bible, the prayer, uh, uh, the, the spirit upon him. With resources, we too are given. That's the amazing thing. That's how he did not sin. Now, let, let me give you real quickly uh, just a, uh, an illustration of the dis 
the legitimacy of this distinction between could not and did not. Here's the illustration. Imagine a swimmer who wants to break the world's record for the longest continuous swim, which is about 90 miles. So he, he of course, trains, uh, sort of like a marathon runner would, would train. That, that is, he swims every day, three, five, seven miles. But then on weekends, he does these longer swims, you know, 10 miles and 12 and 15 and 20 and keeps pressing. And over the months, as he's getting to these longer distances on the weekends, you know, 40 miles, 45 miles, he notices toward the end of the time that he, his muscles are beginning to cramp, and he wonders, what will it be when I attempt a 90-mile-plus swim? Uh, you know, my muscles could cramp and I could drown. He mentions this to his friends, and they all decide the best thing to do would be to have a boat present on the day that he attempts to, to break the world's record, a boat that would follow enough closely enough behind to pick him up if there were a problem, but far enough away that there's no question of interference. So they make the plans for that. He keeps training, and the day finally comes when he's scheduled to, to attempt uh, th this uh, world record-breaking swim. Conditions are perfect, <clears throat> so they decide to do it. So he dives in and begins swimming, and he swims, and he swims, and he swims with all of his heart. All the while, the boat is there 30 feet behind, and he, and he swims, and he, and he succeeds. He breaks the world's record. Okay, two questions. Why is it that the swimmer in this uh, endeavor to break the world's record, why is it that the swimmer could not have drowned? The boat was there, ready to pick him up, right? Second question, why is it the swimmer did not drown? He trained. He swam. Notice that the answer to the second question has nothing to do with the boat. If you say the reason you didn't drown is because the boat was there, he'd look at you and go, what does the boat have to do with it? I kept myself up, and I, I swam. <clears throat> That's how I did not drown. Now, I had a very bright student one time who said, raised his hand, he said, Dr. Ware, I think that boat was helpful to him because it relieved his mind. Now, it, it took me a minute to think this through, but I, I, it came clear to me pretty quickly. That boat to that swimmer is no comfort. What does that boat represent to this swimmer who is trained with all of his heart to break the world's record? That boat is a threat to everything he has been working for. He touches that boat. It's over. I think that applies directly to the question of Christ. So he, he pulls out the God card, as it were, to resist temptation. It's over. He has to succeed as the second Adam, one of us, in a way that Adam failed. And he does so in the power of the Spirit. So indeed, we too are given that. I think this helps explain Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. <clears throat> Look at these words. Amazing words. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Having been made perfect or mature, you could translate that mature, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. In other words, Jesus had to undergo a training course of learning to obey yet more difficult demands of the Father, preparing him for the most difficult that would ever come to him, namely, go to the cross. And we know that when that time came, it was really hard for him to obey. It was anything but easy. He cries out three times, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, here is... 
Here is the angst of the son who is prepared now to do this, but he couldn't have done it earlier. That remarkable 12-year-old boy, no, couldn't have done it. He wasn't ready. He had to learn obedience from the things that he suffered. So the father gave him a training course through suffering, through affliction. I think of the, weave, the, the, the weavers who have, have uh, wheelers. I knew that was wrong when I said it. The <laughs> wheelers who, who have hosted us and all the affliction they have been going through. And, uh, you know, it is for good purposes that God has these things in our lives. It's just uh, hard for us to see it at the time, often. But uh, you know that God is doing this for the sake of our growth so we can handle things that he has for us that are of greater importance later only because we've been faithful in the littler things earlier. That was Jesus. Okay, in conclusion, Jesus' life Ministry, miracles, obedience, resisting temptation, accomplishing the mission which the Father had sent him to accomplish. All this was done as a man in the power of the Spirit. Jesus, then, is the epitome of the new covenant person. You know what I mean by that? New covenant promises the Spirit will come within and enable us to live the life we cannot live on our own. That's new covenant. I will put my Spirit within you. I will write my law on your heart. So, indeed, the new, he's the epitome of the new covenant person living in the power of the Spirit. As he now, as he has now given, uh, and as he has now given us his spirit, we are called to live lives modeled after him. Indeed, we are called to follow in his steps and live new covenant lives that bring honor and glory to Christ by the power of the Spirit. So, my friends, I mean, just marvel at Jesus. It's amazing. I, I can't even begin to tell you how much this has increased how much I respect the the day-to-day obedience of Jesus. Because it was not automatic. Every act of obedience, every resistance of temptation was hard, fought, won. And he did it all the way through to go to the cross for you and me. It's amazing. Well, let's take take a moment here for a few questions as we bring it to a close. So... how are we doing here? Okay. So, uh, so take a moment. Think of a particular question that you can state succinctly that might be a benefit to all. And uh, as you think about that for just a moment, um, one question I think I have is yeah, if, if the reason that Christ did not sin was the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, right. and we too possess yes. that same spirit, should we expect a kind of perfectionism in our mm-hmm. own life? Yes. Good question. Yeah, the difference between Christ and us on on this question is a very, very good question, is he did not have a sin nature. We do. And uh, now, if you ask holistically holistically of us, will we one day live in perfect obedience by the power of the Spirit? The answer is yes. So heaven, there's not some switch that is flipped. We, We go on automatic pilot in heaven. It is a spirit who is completing the work of progressive sanctification, whereby we now are completely filled with the spirit, fully, fully, as it were, empowered by the spirit to live in perfect obedience that will take place then, but not now. So now is a day in which we fight. I mean, think of Galatians 5, the spirit wars against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. And, and so we fight every day for that obedience. Jesus fought too, but our fight includes this dimension of the flesh, which inevitably trips us up. 
If anyone says he has no sin, present tense, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. Yeah, that's First John. So, indeed, th- this is a life of struggling to obey, and yet confidence that the empowerment is given for growth in that, and confidence that the culmination of it will be perfect obedience in the power of the Spirit. Praise be to God. Great. Amen. Questions you all have, and I'll run a mic to you so we can all hear the question. One over here. All right. Here we go. Um, yes. Just a follow-up to your to your question and your comment. So, do we go to the, the the text that we go to in order to prove that that Christ did not have a sin nature? Is that the the text where we talk about the Spirit overshadowing Mary? And um, in 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 terms yes, of, yeah, is that in, in terms of that he doesn't have a sin nature, that right. Did, right? So, that the so, holy child born of you will be called the Son of God. I don't think that that would have been said of him if he was born with an Adamic sinful nature. He's not. I mean, we're not born holy. We're right. born sinful. <clears throat> we are conceived and born sinful. But here he is conceived and born holy. So indeed, and yeah, it's, yes. So born, born of a woman, but the fact that, that he conceived of the Holy Spirit, but born of a woman, so the, the, the fact that he did not inherit that, inherit that sin nature from her, or is that because of the, the Spirit overshadowed? Is that, is that the text? That yes, there, there's an, okay, th- this is complicated. There, there's another <laughs> possible explanation, one that I favor, but not all people do, and that is that sin is passed on through the line of the male. <clears throat> the, the, notice when the sin happened in the Garden of Eden, who sinned first? The woman. She took of the fruit and they gave to her husband, but he's held accountable. And the sins of the fathers are visited upon the third and the fourth. So I think, I think by replacing... Uh, a human father with the Holy Spirit, you cut out the passageway of sin. So there's no sin of Adam that passes on to the one who now is the second Adam. Or you can just simply say, God, because he, because the son is the second Adam, does not permit that sin to be passed on. You could, you could account for it that way as well. Yeah. <laughs> Howard? This succinct part might get me. Um, by saying we, he did not have a sin nature, uh, my question is then, did he, was he immune really from temptation, yeah, of question. giving in to temptation, right. whereas we have a sin nature, right. and even though we may not physically <clears throat> commit it, it says in Matthew, if we do it in our heart or we do it in our mind, we've committed sin. So how did okay. Christ... Yeah. Now, this is, again, this is a bit complicated. I have to do this real quickly. Every temptation that comes to us eventually targets something in us that is created by God as good. Now, it happens to be a good thing that our sin has perverted. Think, for example, of hunger. There's no sin in being hungry, in wanting, in having an appetite to eat, right? There's no sin in that, right? Jesus was, you know, fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. He was really hungry. There's no sin in his wanting to eat. And so the, the temptation to eat when you should not uh, was a temptation that came just as much to him as it does to us because it, it, temptation always is directed at something in your nature that is created by God as good. Those appetites within are given by God as good. Sin perverts them. So we have layers of perversion that attach to those natural appetites, but the, but the temptation 
is always directed through those things, through those perversion, to the actual God-given appetite itself. And so Jesus would have experienced genuinely all of the temptations that would have been given to, that are given to us because they all are directed to those appetites within him for, for uh, food, for, I mean, you know, we're never told that Jesus had temptations of sexual uh, lust or the like, but he must have temptations in that because he was a, he was a genuine man with, with the, all of the equipment men are given. I mean, there's no difference between him and us. And so <clears throat> in all of these ways, the, the temptations were directed to his full humanity, and by that he would have been tempted as we are. We have difficulties in some ways that Jesus did not because of the flesh, because of sinful perversion of those appetites, but he had difficulties far surpassing that in the fact that Satan was after him relentlessly. So, I mean, uh, if you compare how hard was it for Jesus compared to us, I can guarantee you. This, the scales are going to tip very much in, in, in the sense that he was tempted in far more severe ways than we are. Yet, he never sinned. Okay. We probably have time for one more question. Yeah. You do good at this, Brad. That's You're why fine. they hired me. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you said something about um, in heaven we will have the spirit <clears throat> so that... Um, so does that mean in heaven we will have temptation also? I don't think so. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, there's no indication that there will be temptation in heaven. What there will be, though, is uh, fuller, greater, deeper, a longing to obey than we've ever had in our lives. Because sin is now removed, and the Spirit is able to accomplish fully within us what he has come to do, which is really to incline our hearts to love to follow the ways of God, to love the Lord our God with all, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, these, these commandments are fulfilled in their greatest extent, finally, when we are in heaven. And in it, but it isn't that we do it, number one, nor is it something that just is automatic in us. It is rather spirit-empowered obedience all the way through so that God gets the glory. It's not in us to do it. It never can be in us alone to do it. This is the whole point, really, of Old to New Testament, is what you can't do in the flesh, God does, God does in you by the Spirit. Read Romans 8, 3, and 4, just to be reminded of that later. But indeed, that's, that's the glorious hope we have. Vibrant, zealous, longing to obey by the power of the Spirit forever and ever. God be glorified. And uh, may, it, may it happen soon. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, for yeah. folks who want to think more about this, you've written on it? Yes, yes. you want and, to tell them about that briefly? Uh, the book is entitled The Man Christ Jesus. I brought a few copies with me, not a lot. You can also get them on Amazon, but they'll be available. And some uh, other books I've written will be out there.